Hi everyone, this is Christy, and today we're going to talk about moving our students from going through the motions to get a grade to authentic thinking and engaged learning. Along those lines, we've carefully selected our sponsor, Agile Mind. Agile Mind offers mathematics and social-emotional learning programs that have received top ratings by edreports.org and have been adopted by many state education departments, including those representing California, Louisiana, Massachusetts, New Mexico, and others. Since 2001, Agile Minds programs have been known for quality and rigor of core and supplemental materials, which are aligned to various state standards and work well in in in-class, hybrid, or fully remote instructional models. They include engaging online lessons and accompanying print student resources. For more information on Agile Minds programs and a free hands-on demo, search agilemind at edcuration.com and click the Connect to Vendor button on their page. You're listening to the Ed Curation Podcast. We bring you stories from educational leaders about the instructional resources, practices, and movements that are reshaping learning. It's a little bit of social work, a little bit of science, and a little bit of passion. The most valuable resource is also their time. It just can't be wasted on fluff. But we have to be able to continuously poll our students and just give them voice. We have to pick texts that are totally going to push their thinking. One of the things that I really love about teaching is the fact that every day is sort of unique and different and strange, right? Um, I think that's what got me into middle school teaching when I was a student teacher and they had me in an eighth grade placement to start the year. I thought, oh, no, no, no. I had this sort of idea of myself as a high school teacher and I'm going to know all this stuff and kids are going to learn the stuff that I know. And um, that quickly fell away as I realized that eighth graders are wacky and weird and that there's like all sorts of cool learning that happens that just sort of like exists in the classroom, sometimes independent of me, sometimes because like I asked a question, sometimes because like I handed the kid the right book that day, you know? And so there's this way in which um, teaching is like this choose your own adventure story, right? Where you get to see the decisions you make like pay off or fall apart. Um, but it's never boring, you know? I'm the sort of person that like really can't handle being bored yeah so I, I need a job that's interesting and i find that working with kids is like deeply rewarding and hilarious our guest today andy lee is a veteran english and history teacher in the alameda unified school district in the bay area of california he currently teaches an integrated ela and history program called core at a 6th through 12th grade secondary school I met Andy when we worked together to provide professional development and literacy coaching for districts across the country. He mentioned to me then that he was learning about and considering going gradeless. I followed up with him recently to learn about what had happened since that long ago conversation. And just to clarify, teachers going gradeless is not an official or structured program. It's a somewhat organic but research-backed and scholarly reinforced movement. I felt sure that you would be both challenged and encouraged by how removing the obstacle of grades has enhanced learning in Andy's classroom. I'm part of a Facebook group um, called Teachers Going Gradeless that I joined at some point, but I'm not really sure where the impetus to join it came. Um, I don't know if Facebook recommended it to me. You know, these algorithms are tricky and they figure out what you like or might be interested in. And so maybe it just did a good job. But I got roped in really quickly. It's something I'd been interested in um, ever since, like, the new Common Core Standards rolled around. 
because it seemed once we got those, the California standards were like fairly low quality, I would say, back in the day. And so once Common Core rolled around, it seemed like there was this opportunity to do really interesting standards-based work and to be able to talk about like, well, what are kids actually learning? What are they actually mastering in the classroom? Mm -hmm. Um, And I'd had that thought, like maybe my third or fourth year in teaching that I could reorganize how I was doing assessment. And then I put that thought away for a while. Um, It seemed too complicated and too tricky and there wasn't support for it. And I didn't know where to go with it. But then when I got hooked into this Facebook group, I started reading some articles. Um, I'm not remembering the name of it, but Alfie Cohn has written a bunch of good stuff about the reasons to go gradeless. And I found them really motivating and inspiring. Um, It really shook up some of my thinking about like what I was doing with assessment and what the purpose of it was. The article is called The Case Against Grades by Alfie Cohn, K-O-H-N. It was published in Educational Leadership in 2011, so this is not a new movement. The article starts with this quote from a student, quote, I remember the first time that a grading rubric was attached to a piece of my writing. Suddenly, all the joy was taken away. I was writing for a grade. I was no longer exploring. For me, I want to get that back. Will I ever get that back? End quote. Cohn asserts that assessment consists of the two components of collecting information and sharing that information with the student. He explores two remarkable conclusions that he says have emerged from the best theory, practice, and research on academic assessment. First, that collecting information doesn't require tests. And second, that sharing that information doesn't require grades. You can find a link to the article in the episode notes. Andy says that a big motivation for him was to redefine and clarify his role in the classroom, which improved his connection with his students. I think about the teacher's role in the classroom as being a coaching role. Mm -hmm. You're like coaching kids into learning, right? That you are sitting there and you are working with kids to help them build knowledge and help them build skills. And you're helping to guide them along the way. But also when you're doing assessment, you're standing in this like umpire's role where to keep going with this sports analogy. Um, And so those roles don't really fit. They don't sync, right? When you're in this coaching role, you need a high degree of trust. You need the person you're working with to really trust that you know what you're talking about and that you're going to guide them well and you're going to help them succeed. And then when you're in this umpire role, the trust gets broken. Hmm. You no longer sort of have, you're suddenly saying like, oh, well, you didn't do this well enough, you know, or you just barely met this, right? And, And we'll give you this grade. And so I felt like those roles were really incongruous and I was, I was having trouble like thinking about myself in both at the same time in the classroom. Yeah, that's really interesting. I've never heard that comparison before, but it really resonates so strongly with me. And it seems like it's a, it's one of the big hindrances to really creating that relationship of trust in a classroom and allowing kids to take risks. Yeah, the risk taking piece is really important. And you can think of it as sort of a continuum, right? That maybe you are doing coaching the vast majority of the time, or maybe you're sort of umpiring and assessing like the vast majority of the time, right? And so I found the more I was getting into this umpire assessy kind of mode in my job, the less I was feeling good about it. Yeah. And the more you were being pushed to go into that role, because everything is both standard-based and data-based and school districts right now are all about the data. And so you're kind of as a teacher forced into that role of continually collecting that data based on assessment. And even data that's not really based on assessment. Um, If you think about 
the grading software that's available at districts right now. Mm-hmm. I went to high school, you know, in the late 1990s. And so I remember that the teacher would print out the grade book on the wall with our student IDs and we would look at it to see how we were doing, right? That's the old school, like, how are you doing in this class kind of grade yeah. book. But now it's all online and you yeah. have kids who are punching the refresh button to see when their grades update to see what they've mm-hmm. got. So every little assignment starts to become this like life or death matter when that's really not about learning at all. Yeah, that's true. My daughter was one of those. Did you get pushback from students, from teachers, from your administrators, from parents? Surprisingly little. Really? Yeah. Um, and I'm getting less and less every year. Kids come in with a set of expectations that they've heard from the students who had the class the previous year. And so it gets easier. Um, I would say what I went into is I was preparing to make this big switch. And I tried to change a lot of things at once. The first year I tried to roll this out. And that I'm not sure if that's a good idea or not. And there's something to be said for gradual implementation, but that's not really how I like to work. I like to just kind of blow stuff up and try things. and Jump in. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Um, or not fail. So I spent a lot of time reading about how to describe what it was going to be like to students, families, administrators, that sort of thing to make a pitch for it. Before you started. Yeah. Yeah. I think you can make a bad pitch for this. You can say like grades are evil and they're the worst thing in the world and I'm going to blow up this system and it's going to be something new and special and you're going to love it. Right. That's not like a great (laughs) pitch for your principal. Yeah. Um, a good pitch is to say something like, I want my classroom to be focused on learning and growth, right? And we know that traditional assessment doesn't push kids in that direction. We have a lot of evidence. There's a lot of data to show that. Um, and that when kids are playing like the traditional grading system game of trying to accumulate points, they are not focused on learning. And so what I'm going to do in my classroom is I'm going to strip grades off of a lot of assignments so that kids think about like the actual feedback that they're getting. They think about where they can improve. They set goals for themselves and we see actually more learning going on that way. And Mm -hmm. when you say it that way, people are really willing to listen. So at this point, I'm sure that everybody's wondering the same thing as I am is how does it work? Well, so I teach humanities, right? And so it's going to look different, I think, everywhere. Okay. And I exist in a system that has grades. So I have to, at some point, crunch grades out of whatever we've done. Um, I think that the starting point is to tell yourself, I'm not going to slap grades and points on assignments anymore. It's to say like that, we don't, we don't need that. Um, the Alfie Cohen article talks a lot about student feedback and like what constitutes good feedback on student work. And what he says is, as soon as you put a grade on something, your feedback is not read by the student. The grade ends the conversation and it ends the learning. Mm. And so if you want students to look at the feedback, you have to first take the grade off of it. And secondly, you have to ask them to do something with the feedback. You have to ask them to revise or you have to ask them to use the feedback to set some new goals. So you have to ask them to like record the feedback somewhere and like, keep going back to it when they work on the next kind of iterative assignment in the process. So mm-hmm. if you don't ask them to do something with the feedback, they also won't necessarily look at it, which is something I learned the first year. Um, but the grade really ends the learning process for, for kids. Um, and so I basically removed grades off of everything that students did in my classroom. Quick note, we're talking about grades, summative assessment. The work in Andy's classroom is still rich with formative assessment and abundant feedback, which actually gives students a better sense of how they are doing and why than simply assigning a grade. 
that doesn't mean you can't score things and tell students if they're right or wrong. Um, for example, in my AP class, we would do AP practices, right? And I would score them using the, the rubric for like a document-based question or virtual answer questions or whatever it was we were doing. Um, but I'm not putting them into a grade book. I'm just saying, this is how you did on this assignment. These are, these are the places where you got things right. Here's where you didn't score points. You can use that information to set some goals going forward. What then do you do to end up with that final grade that you give them? They're yeah. involved in it, right? Aren't they? You collaborate? Yeah, okay. Pretty deeply. The first year I did it, I had kind of a checklist of skills I wanted students to master. And what I found is I got some very odd pieces of work. As students had mastered many of the skills, but not all of them, I would get an essay that was just working on one particular skill and mm-hmm. was otherwise complete gibberish and didn't really make a lot of sense. So I learned from that that I didn't really, whatever grading system you come up with, students are going to find ways to try to adapt to the system and get the highest grade they can get within mm-hmm. the system. So they're going to learn the tricks of it, right? Mm-hmm. And if you come up with a system that has a lot of check boxes, students are going to start checking those boxes. And sometimes that doesn't mean a lot of learning is happening. Right. Um, and it also means there's not a lot of synthesis between the standards you want students to work on. So if I want my students to become better writers and I have a checklist of different writing skills, when a student only has one of those skills left, they're just going to focus on that one and you're going to get this weird piece of work. So what I've started doing is I created a rubric that describes what an A-level student looks like, A-level, B-level, C-level, D-level. Mm-hmm. And then I have students go through and describe themselves using that rubric when grades are due. And okay. so I say like, hey, what's the evidence that you've produced that suggests you should be in this range, right? And I have a couple of different subsections. Um, one's around like writing and written argument. One is about like growth and one is about like habits of work. Um, and I'm actually going to modify some of those in the future too. But the basic idea is that students can then describe themselves, they can present evidence of their work, and then we can sit down and talk about it in terms of what their final grade should be. In a typical year when there's not a plague and the ridiculous challenges of remote learning, Andy provides the rubric at the beginning of the year and revisits it periodically throughout the semester with his students so they are prepared and equipped for those conversations. Another thing that I've learned along the way, and this is true of traditional grading as well, is that a lot of the problems with grading is that these five-letter grades are not very descriptive. In fact, they're not descriptive at all. Um, A, B, C, D, F, like, don't really mean anything. Wait, E? Is there an E? I've never heard of an E grade. Come to think of it, though, why isn't there an E? I mean, we just skip it. It's so random, which is kind of Andy's point. Imagine you have a kid who has like an 89.5% in your class, and your grading software is telling you to give that kid a B+. That kid has a lot more in common with a kid who has 91% in your class, who's getting an A-, minus, than a kid who has like 81% in your class. But our school district, for example, for semester grades, takes off the pluses and minuses. So your kid who's getting like an 89.5% is getting the same semester grade as your kid who's getting an 81%, mm-hmm. even though their work looks fairly different. Um, and so you have these like kind of border problems between grades where you mm-hmm. feel sort of unhappy or uncertain about the fact that you just gave this kid a lower grade, even though they're so close to the next thing. To address these troubling inconsistencies around grading, a cohort at Andy's school recently read the book Grading for Equity by Joe Feldman. One of the things the author discusses are the tricks that teachers use to push kids into a different grading percentage, like just moving the border between two grades or giving random bonus points. I remember being in high school and our biology teacher gave one of my classmates three bonus points for going and buying her a Coke from the snack bar so that he would get his grade over 90%. 
which, you know, is both hilarious and sort of terrifying, right? It is. And I mean, and it also goes back to the intention. Was it because like that teacher knew this kid really deserves an A, but they had to come up with some way for them to earn it, but like buying me a Coke? Right. How is, how is that the thing? Right. We should be really deeply dissatisfied with those sorts of solutions. And so the elegant solution, and there's a lot of elegant solutions once you start to go gradeless, because some of the problems that are inherent in traditional grading and this point grabbing exercise, like go away because there are no points. So when I have kids who are really borderline and I say, you know what, like, depending on how I feel when I wake up, you might be sort of like at a very low A or a very high B. What I tell those kids is I say, hey, here's a piece of writing you did. I'd like you to look at the feedback and go back and revise it. Right. I'd like you to pick a couple things to work on that I pointed out. Um, we can have a conversation about it before, after, both. I had a kid go through like five iterations of revisions for me um, nice. because he wanted to boost his grade. You know, he wasn't quite getting it. And we kept talking about it and kept asking questions. And like we eventually got this piece of writing to a place where it was pretty good. Um, and he learned something. Yeah. Yeah. And it's cool then to go back and talk with those kids and talk about, hey, what did you learn from this process? Like, what are you going to do differently next time? Um, and those are really rich and interesting discussions about learning, which is what you want. You're not yeah. sending a kid to go buy you like a soft drink. Right. Yeah. So, Andy, is this, does this make your job easier in any way? Harder? The same? Just on a um, pragmatic level, like what is the workload for you? I mean, at the beginning, there was a learning curve, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that it probably is more work if I'm going to be honest, mm-hmm. okay. it depends. We all know that you can slide by as a teacher by just slapping grades on things mm-hmm. and not giving high quality feedback, right? This is like a sort of dirty secret of the teaching world is that there are people who do this and kids are maybe not learning very much from that experience. Um, so giving high quality feedback takes a long time. Providing exemplars, um, meeting with kids. I do a lot of one-on-one conferencing, which I find very rewarding, but is a pretty exhausting process at times. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it really changes your relationships with kids to be able to sit one-on-one and like get to know what kids are working on and what worries them, what they're taking away from your class is really valuable information. And so sitting down for 10 minutes with each kid in your class is really helpful um, mm-hmm. when you find the time. But it's pretty time intensive. Um, the one place where you save time is that you're not doing all the bookkeeping. It's not important. What's important is the learning and you're trying to track that. Yeah. Where you'd rather be spending your time anyway. Yeah, exactly. On that note, I want to remind our listeners that this episode is sponsored by Agile Mind. This is Linda Chaput, founder and CEO of Agile Mind. We're excited to sponsor this episode of the Ed Curation podcast about equity and authentic learning. At Agile Mind, we believe that all learners, regardless of their zip code, deserve a rigorous, high-quality math and science education. We believe that if they're afforded that experience, they're equally capable of achieving at high levels. Agile Mind empowers teachers to achieve this vision, creating compelling classroom experiences that engage, inspire, and fuel student growth. Our programs are built on the science behind how adolescents actually learn math and how to remove the barriers that hamper learning. Our collaboration with the Charles A. Dana Center at the University of Texas at Austin and other leading authors and researchers is key 
to the impact of our programs. You can find Agile Mind at edcuration.com. And now, back to Andy's classroom. What's a typical day in your classroom like? Are students working in small groups a lot? Are they working individually and you're conferencing? What's, what's a day in your room? Yeah, I think there's a variety of those sorts of things. There's stuff, there's shared readings that we're doing together to try to like set kind of the background about whatever kind of prompt or task we're working on. Um, I can give you what we just did um, in my AP World History class, which is we're talking about revolutions and what makes revolutions successful or failures. And so we might read a source together that talks about some criteria um, for success or failure. And then kids will be moving to small groups to work on primary sources and look at evidence and that sort of thing. And then at some point, um, they're starting to craft a piece of writing. They're taking notes, they're working on an outline, and I'm meeting with students one-on-one to talk about the outlines and kind of problem-solve things that are going on. Um, And usually at that point, I'll have given them feedback from the previous assignment. So we'll look at that feedback, we'll talk about kind of big picture goals, we'll troubleshoot stuff about the current assignment um, as part of our conference schedule. Have you started a trend at all? Are other teachers in your school or district following your lead with this? Somewhat. You know, we um, we did a lot of work about this as an eighth grade English history core team. Mm-hmm. Um, there were three of us teaching English and history core at our site, and we were all doing this gradeless approach um, and trying to use sort of similar rubrics for how what meant mastery in the class. Um, that felt really successful. It was nice to work with colleagues. Mm-hmm. We also ran um, a workshop about this for interested secondary mm-hmm. teachers a couple of years ago. And then there's been this latest put, push in grading for equity. And I think um, one of the things I've really learned from looking at this through an equity lens mm-hmm. is that the gradeless approach is really an equity approach at the same time. Say more. Because when you start to pull out all the ticky-tack stuff that goes into the grade, when you start to pull out stuff that's about student behaviors and about things that are sometimes out of student control, like giving points for homework and stuff like that, when you're focused solely on learning, Mm -hmm. you are working more equitably, right? Mm -hmm. You are asking yourself to take all the, like, nonsense and, like, gibberish out of the grade, right? We put all this stuff into grades, and you're saying, like, the thing that my grade measures is whether students are learning. And then you're holding your students more accountable for learning, right? Because you're telling them very directly what you want to see. And you're holding yourself more accountable too. Because there's no more of this like, oh, I feel so sorry for this student. And I'm going to boost their grade, even though they're not learning. You're saying like, my grade is about learning. And so I need to actually make sure that the student understands these concepts. You're, You're providing more equitable instruction for students when you do that. Yeah. So you kind of shared a success story about this one boy who revised his paper several times. Are there any other specific students um, or success stories that have taken place in your classroom around this going gradeless approach? Yeah, there's one I come back to a lot, actually. Um, I had a student in a regular college prep um, world history class maybe four years ago at this point um, who was very school avoidant and resistant. Mm -hmm. I would say it's the the nice way to say this. Um, He did not want to engage. Um, His skills were really low, reading skills and writing skills. And so um, I coaxed some work out of him at some point early in the year, right? I got him to write a few paragraphs um, based on some historical sources that we were reading. And I put feedback on him and, you know, you don't give back papers anymore. But we got Chromebooks out and was like, hey, let's look at the feedback and like set some goals based on this. And he said very audibly, 
so that not everyone in the class could hear, but that definitely I could hear as I walked by and his friends could hear near him that he bet that he got an F on it and then it was going to be all bad feedback. Mm-hmm. Um, and I sort of, I attempted not to smile at this point because when you're giving feedback, or at least when, when I'm giving feedback, what I'm trying to do is describe what I see happening. Mm-hmm. I'm not trying to be judgmental. I'm trying to say, okay, here's a place where you did this, right? You wrote a claim or you had a topic sentence that described what was coming up in the paragraph or you um, explained this piece of historical evidence clearly. Um, or I'm trying to say, hey, you need to work on this, <clears throat> right? Like, have you thought about like, explaining this quote further, like what's its purpose in this paragraph? How does it fit with what you're trying to say? I'm asking a lot of questions. So I just sort of sat back and watched his expression as he was looking at the feedback and he sort of didn't know what to do with it at first, right? It was really different, I think, than evaluative feedback. And that's another benefit of going gradeless is you are not spending all your time evaluating, right? Like this is the umpire coach thing again, is that all I wanted him to think about was like, what is the next step for you to do? What's the next piece of learning instead of like, I'm going to turn you off today by telling you how bad your writing is. How did you see that student evolve throughout the year? I mean, it's not a magic bullet, right? right. Um, no thing. Yeah. yeah. And so, I mean, it didn't make him like not school resistant anymore, but it did mean that he was like willing to take and process feedback and, you know. Um, probably more receptive to you just personally, I'm guessing. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So how does somebody get started with this, Andy? Because it took you a while to sort of evolve through the cycles of learning around this um, and reading. But then when you put that into workshop form for some of your teachers, that probably made it a little bit easier. How would somebody listening to this podcast get started? Yeah, I think that there's a couple different things that are really important. The first is to define what do various grades look like, right? If you're giving a student an A, what sort of work do you want or what sort of abilities or skills or qualities do you want them to have? Mm -hmm. Um, And so being able to write that down and define it in a way that kids can look at it is really crucial. Um, I think that it's important to figure out what tasks are important as summative tasks Mm -hmm. um, and how they're iterative if possible. It's really been valuable in my practice to find tasks that are similar enough to each other that a kid can do one, take some academic risks, make mistakes, screw stuff up, do some stuff well, get some feedback, and then do a similar seeming task. I think it can be really frustrating to kids sometimes um, to just kind of keep working on the same thing over and over and over again and feel like, oh, I'm never making progress, but to be able to keep moving through the course material and say like, hey, we're gonna do another thing like this. We're going to take another stab at this set of standards. Um, that may be easier in the humanities. I'm not sure. I found it works pretty well in history and English classes because we're doing similar forms of writing. Yeah. Uh, a lot of times. So there's a high degree of structure. Um, and then the other piece of it that I found really important is thinking about when are you going to meet with kids and sit down and talk? When are kids going to set goals? When are you going to give them feedback? Um, yeah. So there's a lot of pre-planning that goes into it. And then throughout the semester or quarter or however people's grading cycles work, are, are there times when they are able to check in with where they're at um, and get an idea of what they need to do if they want to end up, you know, with an A or a B or whatever? Um, do they know or is it just kind of a surprise at the end when they, when they 
sit down with you to figure out their final grade. Yeah, the surprise is not ideal. Um, if there are weaknesses to this, I think it's when the grade feels like a surprise. And usually that's a place of reflection for me. It's like, what did I do wrong in terms of communicating feedback? Okay. Um, and so I think it's useful sometimes during conferences to talk with kids about like, where do you think you're at right now? What grade are you aiming for? Like, what are going to be the steps you want to take to get there? Okay. I've been using a um, growth and goals tracker with students that they fill out um, as they get feedback on work and that I fill out when we have conferences just to make sure that we're on the same page. And that helps a lot. And one of my thoughts about how I'm going to revise it for next year is to think about goals, but also sort of behaviors, mm-hmm. right? Like, what is it that you want, right? And on some, like, big picture scale, it's like, oh, I want an A, right? And it's mm-hmm. like, okay, so what are some goals you're going to set to try to get there? And then what sort of behaviors do you need to, like, change or alter to get you there? Do you need to revise your work more? Do you need to pay attention more? Do you need to participate in class discussions more? Um, and I think that linkage, making that apparent is really important for students. Um, and then the other piece of this, I would say is that revision process, like telling kids, Hey, if you're not satisfied, we'll talk about what you can do. You know, sometimes there's not much. I mean, sometimes your work just isn't where you want it to be. And that's disappointing. And I've had kids who end up being disappointed, but that also is true in traditional grading, right? right? Like not everyone gets what they want. Um, but if you're close, right, like we want to talk about what you can do, like what are the revisions you can make? How else can you show your learning? So it sounds like you have and are continuing to create a lot of your own resources around this. Are there places that teachers can go to look for those kinds of resources that have already so they're not reinventing the wheel? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of books um, about this stuff. And, you know, I have two tiny children, so my ability to like tune into this stuff varies depending yeah. on what's going on. Um, I really like this grading for equity book by Joe Feldman. I really, I bought a book called, I think, Hacking Education or Hacking Grades. The book is called Hacking Assessment, 10 Ways to Go Gradeless in a Traditional Grades School. The author is Star, S-T-A-R-R, Saxstein, and it's available on Amazon. Also linked in the episode notes. The Facebook group is really useful because people have shared rubrics, they've shared ideas, they have like a constant stream of cool, interesting resources. And the Facebook group is just called Teachers Going Gradeless, right? This is one thing that just seems like it would really make a difference in your own role as a teacher and also the approach to the kids in the room around around what they're accomplishing. Do you love your job more since you started doing this? I, I would say it definitely opens up a lot of aspects of teaching that sometimes feel closed off. Mm -hmm. Sometimes you feel like, oh, I'm the enforcer and everything needs to be my way, or you wish that everything was more your way. The way to get things more your way as a teacher is not necessarily to demand them. It's to set up systems so that they happen. Right. You You can tell kids, oh, hey, I need you to like read my feedback, but they're not going to read your feedback until it actually benefits them. Mm -hmm. Um, until they see some sort of purpose. One of the pieces that I really like that I want to incorporate into my class from this Grading for Equity book is uh, it talks about a teacher who asks students to talk about the most important mistake they made on their last assignment. Hmm. Right? Because if we're talking about risk-taking and growth and learning, a big piece of that is making mistakes. And so what mistake was the most informative for you? Like what actually helped your learning the most? 
And then he has little like mistake analysis teams and groups where they go through and they look at a student's work and they say like, oh, this is the sort of mistake you're making. And here's why we think you're making it. That is so interesting. And I love the terminology too around important mistake. This is an important mistake. Why? Because it's informative, because it teaches us, it helps us how to move forward. And it really feeds into that growth mindset of yep. that our mistakes are there to teach us. So good. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's transformative to be able to talk like that with students, because that's mm-hmm. how we know that learning actually works. Learning isn't about compliance. It's not about everyone sitting in a row, like filling mm-hmm. out the same worksheet. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't always happen at the same time. And so we give ourselves all sorts of permission to do things differently once we strip grades off things. While this all may sound new and trendy, it's not. Cohn's article cites systematic studies from the 1980s and 1990s that report three conclusions. First, grades tend to diminish students' interest in whatever they're learning. Second, grades create a preference for the easiest possible task. And third, grades tend to reduce the quality of students' thinking. I think really traditional grading tends to be so much about how can I breed compliance in my classroom by holding this carrot and stick over the heads of my students. It increases stress. Um, it leads to all sorts of behaviors that we don't actually like. Um, it creates all sorts of weird outcomes by students who figured out how to accumulate points without learning things. I think yeah. about a student in my class who was sitting at like 91% in my AP World History class because she was really good at participating in discussions but didn't know anything failed AP test. And I often think about students like that when I think about why I'm doing it this way. Like this gradeless approach isn't perfect. Kids still sometimes like you still end up with sometimes with grades that you're sort of like, huh, I wonder how that happened. Right. But you end up with that less. So who would you recommend this to? Any secondary teacher, middle school, high school? Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's doable in any sort of discipline. Um, Any content area. Yeah. Yeah. Any grade level, um, I find it works in interestingly different ways between my general ed eighth grade class and my AP 10th grade classes. Mm-hmm. You notice the 10th graders in AP are way more grade focused, which means that they freak out a little sometimes, but they also are really willing to try to learn the system. They'll take in the feedback, they'll revise stuff. I had kids this year, in fact, tell me, hey, your feedback was really helpful. I think I learned a lot from it. I'm like, oh, that's good. What's supposed to happen? So inspiring. I always love talking to Andy Lee, and you can find more information about teachers going gradeless and the articles and books mentioned in the episode notes. Maybe you're longing to increase the rigor and authentic learning in your classroom, but you're not quite ready or don't have the support to go gradeless. Today's sponsor, Agile Mind, can help you take a step in the right direction. My teachers encouraged me to change my mindset. If we're talking about you can get smarter with effective effort, if you tell them, yes, you can succeed if you try, if you work hard, if you push yourself through this, and we don't give them a real, a real opportunity for them to try it, then we're just teachers talking to them. Before, when I got to a challenging problem, I would just give up and not try because it was confusing and frustrating. It was hard because you like struggle, like you just have like, a negative like mindset so you just think that you can't do it. I felt like just like not coming to school anymore because like I didn't really get it and I was confused but now I actually work hard for it. It's them proving it to themselves. They were given a chance to try the math and to succeed at it. 
You'll find all of Agile Minds resources at edcuration.com. And while you're there, check out our free micro-professional learning explorations, our certified ed trustees program that allows you to pilot new cutting edge resources and to influence the educational market and our blog. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to like, follow, and share. And if you have a topic or resource you'd like to share with our audience, reach out to us here at the Ed Curation Podcast, where we are reshaping learning.